Hey, my name is Ashley Smith, and I am the pastor of the Mormon Bar Seventh Day Adventist Church. It's my privilege this week to be able to do the lesson for you guys. So, what we're looking at this week is we're looking at Abraham's seed. Now, this really takes us all the way back to the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and the implications of that promise when God comes to Abraham in Ur and he calls him out and he gives him a number of promises to which he holds on to and clings um, in faith and he steps out in faith. In Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3, God's saying, I will do this, I will do this for you, I will do this for you, I will do this. And there's five I wills where God says that he would bless Abraham and use Abraham and through the family of Abraham, he would in turn save the world. And it's quite a beautiful picture that we see in Genesis chapter 12 that has far-reaching implications. God chooses a family and through that family he saves mankind. Now if we fast forward the story a little bit we come to the children of Israel inhabiting the land there in Canaan and it brings us out and lesson how where God had his people be was actually at the intersection of the ancient world. So it was connecting essentially three different continents, Africa, Europe and Asia. And so from the calling of Abraham and the promise of the land, we see the missionary heart of God and his desire to save all men. But what I want to have a look at here today is the calling that was placed on these people who were the offspring of Abraham and what they were called to be and the lives that they were called to live. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6, and we're not just going to read verse 6 here, we're also going to read verses 7 and 8. The broader context is really illuminates this passage somewhat. God says this to the children of Israel and it and it. I guess it brings up a question in my mind. Why did God choose Abraham? And the answer that is given to us in Scripture is here. In verse 6 it reads, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples. Verse 8. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, this is quite a, an interesting passage of scripture here. God is saying to the children of Israel, they're, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're receiving instruction from the Lord. And God is reminding them of the fact that you have not been chosen because you are any better than anybody else. But in fact, you are the weakest. And so... This is a common theme that you see throughout Scripture that God actually uses the weakest to confound the wise. He chooses the foolish ways of man to bring about his great acts of deliverance. And so I just want you to think about what God has said here in this passage of Scripture. Their redemption and their salvation and therefore their calling is based entirely upon the initiative of God. There was nothing that they did to recommend themselves unto him that would demand him to act in the way that he has. Here are people who are weak, who are subjects as slaves. They have no autonomy, they have no power, they have no jurisdiction over their own lives. They're completely in bondage. And here God comes to them and performs a mighty deliverance on their behalf. There's no other word for this than grace. I mean, throughout Scripture, God's initiating grace. You see it in the, the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned. As soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. The Lord walks in the garden in the coolness of the day. He comes after them 
he initiates the whole process because there's no way that mankind could ever get up to God. In other words, he had to come down to our level because there's no way that we could ever get up to his. You see the same principle when we see Abraham being called. Like what had Abraham done to deserve the calling that he received? It was because of the initiating grace of God. And so God takes the initiative towards his people. In fact, this whole initiating grace is fundamentally important in salvation. God has to make the first move. We also see this in the sanctuary. You think about just how significant the acts of redemption were in the sanctuary system. You'd have the sacrificial offering, which was the substitute. And then you'd have the high priests and the priests who would then minister in the sanctuary. And so everything to do with the salvation, the ritual act of salvation that we see portrayed in the Jewish sanctuary, is communicating that the entirety of the service is wrapped up in the ministry of the sacrificial animal and the high priest. And that's really significant because if we take those very symbols, the lamb, let's just for the sake of the, the discussion here, uh, I know there was various animals that were sacrificed, but let's just focus in on the lamb for a moment. Jesus is the lamb of God. Jesus is the sacrifice. And Jesus isn't just the sacrifice in the sacrificial system. Jesus is also the high priest. And so Jesus embodies both of these two different roles in the sanctuary. So basically everything concerning our salvation is wrapped up in Jesus. And the only thing that we have to do is come. You have to bring the animal. You have to believe that the sacrifice is sufficient on your behalf. And so God takes the initiative towards his people because there's nothing that we could do on our behalf and there's no merit within ourselves to demand salvation. God does it for us. But then in verse 6 it also says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord. And so this is a really significant thing because holy people live holy lives there was a requirement on behalf of the people of god who'd received such mercy and such grace and such amazing deliverance from god that they were called to act and to live a particular life and so my question is this what did he call them to and what did he choose them for now last week's lesson it opens this somewhat and at the beginning of this lesson there's a memory text for this week and it's from first peter chapter 2 and verse 9 and this is the New Testament understanding of it, which, mind you, is no different to the Old Testament understanding. Peter says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I believe that Peter here is borrowing from two Old Testament verses, and one particularly to do with the notion of priesthood, and the second one to do with the notion of light in the midst of darkness. Now, I want to unpack these two things because these two things communicate to us what God had called this people to, why he had called them out in the first place. He doesn't just call them out for the sake of calling them out. It's not just to save Israel, but it's also that through Israel, the whole world might be saved. Remember, God chose a family to reach the families of earth, and God chooses this family uh, represented and as it grows into the nation of Israel to reach the nations around them. And so there's two concepts in this verse. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the first one is priesthood and the second one is light. And there's two Old Testament scriptures that we looked at last week, but I think set the tone for what we're looking at this week as well. It's in Exodus chapter 19. And God is talking to the children of Israel after he's you know, brought them out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're now wandering in the wilderness here at the base of Mount Sinai. And God reminds them of what he's done for them. Again, he demonstrates to them the initiative that he has performed on their behalf. 
He says, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is in verse 4 of chapter 19 of Exodus. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so we see this really personal kind of element of God's salvation. He's in the process of delivering them from slavery, of bondage in Egypt, and bringing them to him. And then he says this, Now therefore, because I've delivered you, because I've saved you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now this is really significant. God says to the children of Israel that they should be a kingdom of priests. Which makes me think, what was the purpose or what was the role of the priest? What was the duty of the priest and, and why was he called to the specific task that he was called to? A priest is there, is called to represent and mediate, to be a go-between. Now, in the Jewish sanctuary, the priest would be the, the mediator between God and man. But here God is saying that you shall be a kingdom of priests. In other words, they're representing God before who? Before the nations. And so the whole entire um, corpus kind of Israel is called for the specific purpose, not just to receive the blessing, but to be the blessing to the world. And so when Peter says, you are a chosen generation, he's thinking of this specific verse. In other words, there's a legacy of God's people all throughout salvation history from the time of as soon as there was sin in the Garden of Eden all the way through to the very end of this world. What we see is we see God's people as representatives of light in the midst of darkness. They're priests called to be representatives before the world. The second kind of thing that we see in this verse is the, the motif of light and darkness. Now, in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 3, we, we see this same theme kind of drawn out. I believe as Peter's writing this, he's, he's thinking of these Old Testament verses. In Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. And so what we see here is God's people are to shine. They're to radiate the presence of God, so the Gentiles shall come to your light. Israel was to shine for the glory of God. They were to be a holy people who were to live holy lives. And by virtue of living those holy lives in relationship with the Lord, they were to represent him amongst the nations and to be a, a fragrant aroma that others would be drawn to God to figure out who this God is, that Israel is so blessed, that Israel is so prosperous, and that things are just, there's something different about this group of people. There was to be a particular appeal that Israel was called to represent and display before the world. And that's because they followed what the Lord said and the Lord lived in their lives. Now, the only reason that we can shine is because Jesus is the light of the world and he shines upon us. And so we have no ability to shine in and of ourselves, just as we don't have any ability to represent God on our own behalf. He calls us to this priesthood. He bestows this light upon us. And as we live a life that's in connection with him and according to his holy requirements, we do shine and we rep represent him amongst the nation. You know, when I think of the history of Israel and I think of their ups and their downs, it's sometimes it's a, it's a bit of a, you, know, you read through the book of Judges, you read through Samuel, you read through Kings, you read through Chronicles. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but you've read the stories before and then you pick up the Bible and you hope that they're going to make different decisions the next time round. But as you read it, invariably they make the same decisions again and again. But there was a high point 
in the history of Israel. And it was under the leadership of Solomon. God used Solomon in a mighty way as he prayed for wisdom. He received wisdom. And in 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 34, we see the epitome of what it looked like to be a holy people representing God amongst the nations. In 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 34, Solomon had already asked for wisdom. God had bestowed wisdom upon him. As this life of wisdom was lived out, God blessed in mighty ways. And in this chapter, we see the Queen of Sheba coming and talking to Solomon and he's sharing everything that's within his heart. And at the end of chapter 4, we see a quick summary of what God was doing. It says, And men of all nations, from all kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now this is a really interesting um, end of the chapter. All the kings and all the men and all the subjects of all the nations desired to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, why was his wisdom so sought after? Where did it come from? It didn't just appear all of a sudden out of like, it was in this vacuum that it all of a sudden miraculously arrived. It was always there. God said, you are a holy people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people unto him above all the people upon the face of the earth. And so that calling to be special also has particular requirements. And when the Israelites lived their lives according to the calling that God had given them, amazing things would happen. God predicted this. And so as the people came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, what did they hear? I believe as they came to listen, Solomon may have said the words that we see in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or, and knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. And so the context for their prosperity and the context for their growth is dependent entirely upon a living relationship with the Lord. And we see this in the time of Solomon. Now, at the end of Deuteronomy, there's these contrasting chapters, and you would know them as the, the chapters of blessing and the, the chapters of curses. And so there's a number of chapters that are devoted to this specific instruction. God says, if you follow me, this is what will happen. If you don't follow me, this is what will happen. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, it says this, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I commanded you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And we come down to verse 15, it says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. God is basically saying here that my blessing is not, is not promised to you, and you can then go and do whatever you wish. There's certain obligations that you need to meet. You need to live this holy life. You need to follow my instructions. And at the heart of this is this word called covenant. And covenant is more than just stipulations. Covenant is more than just rules and blessings and cursings. Covenant is relationship. And what we see is God had called Israel, the church is his bride, and he had redeemed her unto himself. And it's really beautiful imagery as you read through the Old Testament that God is talking about Israel and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. There's this real kind of intimate language where God is giving all of himself to his bride, Israel, and he's expecting Israel to give all of herself to him. And the, the covenant only ever makes sense if it's in connection with relationship. Otherwise, it just becomes this contract. It's basically God taking the children of Israel. It's redeeming his bride from bondage and slavery and taking her to Mount Sinai and then them signing the marriage covenant. They're both saying, I do. I will be faithful to what you've promised. And Israel was called to be blessed and it was called to be prosperous. And that was a choice that they had to make. They could choose otherwise. They could reject the mercy and the um, overtures of God's love and they could choose to be cursed. 
But in following God's way, we find the best way that we can ever live. And the only way we can really ever radiate his presence is if we put ourselves in the place where he lives in our hearts and we follow him with all of our heart, mind and soul. It's interesting that when God saves them from slavery, he brings them to a place where he brings about law. Now, often there's negative connotations when it comes to law, but law is necessary for people and for civilization. God doesn't call them out of slavery and then bring them into lawlessness. He calls them out of slavery and he brings about his law, which is a law of love. Otherwise, there would be anarchy. And so God cares about his people so much that he cares about the way that they live their lives. He cares about the way that they interact with one another. He cares about the way that they interact with him. He cares about the way that they interact with the society around them. And so God brings about these laws in order for them to rightly represent him amongst the nations. And it's a beautiful thing. But the covenant is more, like I said, than just stipulations and requirements. The covenant is a person. In the book of Isaiah, we actually see that Jesus gives himself as a covenant for the people. And that makes sense because at the heart of covenant is relationship. And when we look at scripture, the one who initiates this relationship in all of scripture is Jesus Christ himself. So it would make sense that Jesus gives himself as a covenant for the people. The sad thing when you look at the history of Israel, you know, as summarized in Jeremiah 11 verse 8, it says, Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked everyone in their own imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. And sadly, humanity, the carnal self, chooses that path more often than what we should. But the beautiful thing in Scripture is that God is long-suffering. That even in the midst of Israel's apostasy and apparent disregard for what God had promised and commanded them to do, we see that God is long-suffering towards them. And so the judgment is always, the can is kicked down the road for a number of years. You know, you see abhorrent apostasy in the nation of Israel. And there, there are some consequences there. There may be the Midianites who come and who surround them and engage in warfare, but then God raises up a judge. Or in the time of the kings, there's apostasy. And when a, an enemy, the Moabites, the Syrians or... The Assyrians may come and defeat them. But it always appears as if complete judgment is being withheld because of the long-suffering nature of God. And when you think of Jesus as the covenant who gives himself for the people, it's really powerful when we think of that in connection with the, the promises that, that God gave to the children of Israel, the blessings um, in Deuteronomy for obeying the covenant and also the curses for disobeying the covenant. Because obedience, simply put, is choosing God's way and disobedience is simply choosing our own way. And God says, you have two, two ways. Which way are you going to walk in? When Joshua says when they cross you know, the Jordan River, he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so in serving the Lord, you're choosing to be obedient to what he has said. It may not necessarily make sense, but God's way is always the best way. And these blessings and these curses, I want you to think about it. Did Israel experience the curses? Absolutely. The northern kingdom went into captivity. The southern kingdom went into captivity not too long afterwards. They were sieged. They were carried off into foreign lands. Everything that was outlined in the curses happened. But in a broader kind of perspective, in a broader view, Jesus as the covenant, as he died on Calvary, he provided the blessings to humanity and he experienced the curses of humanity as well. 
And when God said to Abraham, when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he said, you will be a blessing through you, through your family, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. All nations of the earth shall be blessed because of Jesus, because Jesus provides the blessing of fellowship to all humanity. He extends the arms of fellowship towards humanity only because he experiences the curses of humanity in himself. And as he dies on the cross, he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a beautiful picture of what covenant means. At the heart of covenant, we see a God who is more willing to lay down his own life that we might be saved. He knows. He knows the cost of covenant, and he's willing to bear the costs of the covenant for the redemption of his children. This is why covenant is all throughout Scripture. It's God taking the initiative when he never has to. It's Jesus dying our death that we may have the life that we never deserved to live. Now, when you look at the history of God's people, and you look at Revelation chapter 12, you see this woman she's clothed in the sun she's standing on the moon she's a representative of god's people throughout the ages from the beginning all the way through to the end and as you look at revelation chapter 12 it gives us a window after the birth of christ all the way through to the the time just before jesus comes where we see that satan is is angry with this woman and he goes to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of god and have the faith have the testimony of jesus christ we see that satan has always He's always sought to destroy and disrupt, to persecute and to compromise the church of Christ. And he's always militantly attacked her. But God always has a group of people throughout the ages. He always does and he always will. And those people will cling to Jesus in weakness. They're never the majority. They're always the minority. But they always are willing to choose to accept that calling that God has placed upon their lives to be a holy people. To follow what God has said when everyone else may be doing otherwise. They choose what is right because it's right and they leave the consequences with God. Now, today we have some wonderful scriptures, wonderful promises where God calls us and places a particular calling upon our lives. I believe the calling of the church is no different to the calling that Abraham received. He was called that through his family all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We see the early church, we see the missionary endeavors in which they participated in, we see that they believe that the earth would be blessed through the message of the gospel as it would be shared. And I believe today that we have a very precious message to share the three angels' messages, that through this message, the world may be prepared for the soon coming of Jesus Christ. I believe that the message to Abraham, the message to the early church, the message of today, it's the same message, that we might be blessings to those around us. And there's a reason why that's the case. And in the book of Galatians, I want to read this out to you. This is a passage of scripture where Paul borrows from the story of Abraham. And he uses it. He does this quite often. He takes the story of Abraham and he works it to explain the gospel and the gospel message. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, this is what he says. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see that connection in verse 29, where he says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It links us back to the story of Abraham and it makes us one. That's what this whole passage is talking about. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. We are all one in Jesus. And we're linked. 
we're linked to the story of Abraham way back in the beginning. We become a part of his seed because of the promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I want you to think about that promise that was given to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, we keep referring back to this story of Abraham. What was that promise that he gave them? There were five I wills, remember? Let me read them out to you. God says, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's home to a land that I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we say God saying to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. So we see the blessings and the cursings right here in this verse as well. But the main point that I want to get at here is God saying, I will bless you. Now, does God bless us just for the sake of blessing us? Or does God bless us that we might be a blessing to others? When I look at this, I see the missionary heart of God. This calling for Abraham was not just a calling for Abraham and his family, but it was a calling for the earth. God is saying here, the blessed will be a blessing. Why? Because through this blessing given to a particular family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's why God called the children of Israel a nation of priests. It's why Isaiah said that the light of the Lord shall shine upon you and the Gentiles will come to you. It's why we see Solomon as he's following the counsel of God and living up to that calling of being a holy people. All the kings and all the leaders of the earth were wondering what was different with the nation of Israel. And I'll tell you what was different. The fear of the Lord was upon Israel. When we come to the New Testament church, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. God says, I will bless you, Abraham, and through my blessing upon you, you will be a blessing to the world. It's no different to the church today. God has called us to be a blessing to the world around us. How can this be? Well, in verse 26, it says, because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the covenant, and belonging to him brings the covenant blessings. Jesus is this great ladder. He's this great ladder that redefines reality. John chapter 1, where Jesus meets with Nathaniel and he's talking to Nathaniel and he tells him that he sees him under the tree and Nathaniel he confesses that you know Jesus is is Lord Jesus says greater things and what did he say that he will see he says that he will see angels ascending and descending upon the son of man now he borrows from that dream that was given to Jacob at Bethel when he has that dream of that great ladder Jesus here is calling himself that great ladder upon which the angels ascend and descend now the imagery here is powerful and I think it links really well into the whole concept of covenant. This ladder reaches all the way up to heaven and it reaches all the way down to earth. It's a principle of a ladder. It connects the higher with the lower and the lower to the higher and Jesus is this great bridge that connects heaven to earth. He's the covenant. He's a ladder that goes all the way up to the throne room because that's who he is and that's where he came from. He was equal with God as it says in Philippians. But it reaches all the way down to the depths of this earth. Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. And that's why he is the covenant for his people. He represents both God as God and he represents man as man. And that's why there's such a power in this whole concept of covenant. Like I said, the covenant isn't just a list of rules or obligations. At the heart of covenant is a person. At the heart of the covenant, according to Scripture, is Jesus Christ himself. 
and he lays his life down and he connects heaven to earth. He gives us the blessings of heaven and takes away the curses of sin. God is good. And so I want you to think about it. This is Abraham's seed. The nations of the earth would be blessed because of the seed of Abraham. Now, yes, I focus here today on the fact that, that God's people are called to be a blessing to the world. But the greater fulfillment of this promise where all the nations of the earth were to be blessed through the seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ himself. That messianic promise in the book of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the very first one where God promises a seed through the woman is again promised to Abraham and then is fulfilled in the incarnation of Jesus Christ as he comes to earth and he performs that role as the great ladder between heaven and earth. Jesus is that ladder. Jesus is Abraham's seed. And Jesus comes and he fulfills what Abraham lost. I heard a preacher once say that we lost it at a tree talking about the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And Jesus won it back at a tree, the Calvary. He also said that we lost it in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Jesus made the decision in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Everything that we mess up, God fixes. And Jesus comes as that second Adam, the fulfillment of Abraham's seed, that we might have the opportunity of belonging to the same family that we might have the privilege of belonging to Abraham's seed as well. Jesus gives us a chance that we never would have had otherwise. And I think at the heart of this, yes, it's a privilege to be considered a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Yes, yes, yes. It's wonderful. Praise the Lord. It's such a blessing to be a blessing. But before we could ever become that blessing, Jesus needed to become a curse for us. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, as we close, often we forget to read the very next verse after verse 9 which reminds us where we have come from. And when we remember where we come from, we are more appreciative of where we are now. As God reminded the children of Israel of their own Exodus story of what God had called them from and then what he had called them to, it provided the context that they would never forget the privileges that heaven had afforded them as being Abraham's seed. I think we're so quick to forget. Just the same. And in verse 10, after God says what they've been called to as a chosen generation of royal priesthood, he says, who were once not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We have received, through the initiative of God, that which we never deserved, but we've been so freely given. And that's grace. It's the initiative of God. And my question for you here this morning is, what will you do with that initiative that heaven has so freely given to you? Will you take it and will you receive it and hold on to it just for yourself? Or will you receive the blessing to be a blessing? Because that's what Abraham's seed does. It receives the blessing of heaven that it may distribute the blessing of heaven. Thank you guys for listening today. I hope that you enjoyed this discussion of the Sabbath school lesson. And I pray that your study this Sabbath will be blessed as you open the word and fellowship together. God bless.